Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. When children are born deaf, their parents are suddenly presented with an immediate, difficult choice. Looking back, it's just such a blur. It really is. Like, this all happened in in less than a month. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. We'll learn about the decision parents face about how to teach their children to communicate. We'll also learn about two programs in our region that are working to help those with opioid addictions. One heads out in the van. The other collects data. And then I thought, you know, if I'm keeping this information, which is really interesting, what if everybody was keeping this information? Plus how the health of pollinators impacts our food supply. I think the general public should know that our food system is threatened by the fact that the bees are in trouble. And the music mecca faces complaints over labor laws. I didn't think I could really do anything about it or that it was different from anyone else's workplace. It's next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks for joining us. We're going to begin this week with two ideas about how to tackle the opioid epidemic. And our first stop is in an oversized white medical van in Boston. It's based on the concept that the treatment needs to be as easy to find as the drugs. So let's go with WBUR's Martha Biebinger as she takes a ride. An unusual trio of street outreach workers and a physician hop off what's known as the Care Zone van. They hoist backpacks loaded with clean needles, Narcan, sandwiches, and basic first aid. The first stop is a small camp of sleeping bags and cardboard bedding under a concrete bridge. People do get high on the other side here, but if you want to just take a look at what we're talking about. Sarah Mackin checks one guy who's breathing, but so deeply sedated or asleep, he's difficult to rouse. Mackin's partner, Phil Ribeiro, tucks a ham sandwich into the guy's bag. Leave him a sandwich, a little bit of love, and keep him moving. On to the next. Mackin and Ribeiro, veteran members of the Boston Public Health Commission's needle exchange program, are familiar faces out here and typically make the first contact with an occupied sleeping bag. Dr. Jesse Gaeta with Boston Healthcare for the Homeless program approaches once it's clear that a new face will not send the person back into hiding. We're trying to let people know that we're not there to um, arrest them, we're not there to clean up their encampment, to kick them out. All we want to know is, do we have something that you need and want? And if we do, great. But these prospective patients describe feeling shunned by doctors. So it can take weeks of stopping by with a sandwich or clean needles before they'll let Gaeta check their blood pressure or an oozing injection wound. And so we gradually build relationship that way. Earning a patient's trust is just the first hurdle. Here's the potholed path to treatment for a woman Gaeta met about a year ago near downtown Crossing. It's one of four overdose hotspots where the van stops each week. I was talking with a woman in an alleyway, and she was interested in trying Suboxone. She's very sick. In a quick check with her stethoscope, 
Gaeta can hear heart trouble. So we're going to walk a few blocks to the van, and in that few blocks, I can't tell you how many men propositioned her. You know, I felt like I was competing with their time and literally was like, step aside. She is not going with you. She is going with us. The woman went to a detox program and started Suboxone, a less potent opioid that cuts cravings for stronger drugs. The woman relapsed, and Gaeta lost track of her. Now the woman reappears, and Gaeta ushers her into the van's mini-exam room. We'll just use her first name, Bree, because she uses illegal drugs. Bree tells Gaeta she overdosed a few days ago while on a bus from Boston to New Hampshire. The bus driver, thank God, had Narcan. Mm-hmm. If the bus driver did not have Narcan, I don't think that I would be here. Okay. Yeah. Bree slides onto a shortened exam table while Gaeta checks her heart. Oh, Bree, I'm so glad you're here because um, it sounds like last week was hell what you went through. Yeah. Bree has a heart valve infection that's common among so, injection drug users. I can tell from examining your, your neck veins and other things, your legs, that the swelling is less. Right. This is Friday. Gaeta asks Bree to come back to the van on Monday for more blood work. That would be the potassium Yeah, the potassium and the kidneys. Yep. Mostly, I'm just I want to make sure you make it through the weekend to see me on Monday. Gaeta wants Bree to start Suboxone again right away. But there's a problem. Bree is homeless. She does not want to make the transition from fentanyl to Suboxone a partial withdrawal that brings on fever and nausea while on a sidewalk or some park bench. In two days on Sunday, she can crash at a friend's place. I can be there all day on Sunday, so when I'm not feeling well, I can just stay in bed. Gaeta is worried about this plan, but Bree won't check into a residential program. Gaeta takes both Bree's hands and looks her in the eye. You just had an overdose last week, so that's why we've done a lot of planning for the next 36 hours. Yeah. Everything that you need yeah. to yeah. make sure that you're not going to die, even yeah. as you still inject today and mm-hmm. tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So, okay. Yeah. Breeze is one of 316 prescriptions for Suboxone given patients via the CareZone van since it launched 18 months ago. Funding for the van, about $200,000 a year, is from the Craft Center at Mass General. Program director Dr. Elsie Tavera says the early data is exceeding expectations. We shouldn't have been surprised that if you bring a program on demand to the population that needs it most and make it easy for them to access care, that it was going to be successful. Tavera sends regular updates to her business, civic, and law enforcement contacts in those neighborhoods that agreed to host the van. Jay Walsh, who runs the Downtown North Association, says he sees the results, too. Before, you'd have, you know, six or seven people that were under the influence of drugs, leaning up against the wall, blocking access to the store. Walsh looks across Causeway Street at the now-empty front stoop of a convenience store. He credits the CareZone van. They're saving lives and giving people a chance to escape the world that they're in. Except that treatment alone may not provide an escape route. It's a lot easier to manage an illness like addiction when you have stable housing, food, and other basic needs. Bree didn't show up for her Monday appointment, and Dr. Gaeta hasn't seen her since. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Martha Biebinger. Finding data about opioid overdoses can be difficult for public health officials and first responders, but having that information can help them save lives. A paramedic in Hartford, Connecticut, grew impatient, waiting almost two years for state data on opioid overdoses. 
Cassandra Basler from member station WSHU explains how his efforts to track the crisis in real time turned into a statewide program. Paramedic Peter Canning walks me through Hartford's Pope Park. He picks up empty heroin baggies as we pass athletic fields, a public pool, and a picnic pavilion where a few people appear to nod off. The, uh, the pavilion place is really the place to go, but as you can see, the people are down there using right now, so we'll leave them in peace. Canning has found overdose victims unresponsive in the bushes, porta potties, and on the bench we sit down on. He started to notice a disturbing trend about five years ago. He felt like every call he responded to was an overdose, and it gave him an idea. I started just like writing down, you know, the overdoses I did, how old the people were, their gender, um, how they got started. Um, and then the, the heroin bags, I would write whether or not I f- saw heroin bags there. And then I thought, you know, if I'm keeping this information, which is really interesting, what if everybody was keeping this information? But he didn't know how to put his idea into practice until he went to a conference about the opioid crisis. There, Canning ran into the interim director of the State Poison Control Center. And he said, you know, poison control, we have operators there 24-7, and this is right up our alley. So Canning and Poison Control launched a pilot program for a section of Hartford. Connecticut's Department of Public Health took notice. It offered federal funding to expand the program and issue monthly reports. Now, Poison Control will track all of the overdoses all in one place for the first time. Before this, some hospitals only required EMS to report when they administered the overdose antidote naloxone. Now, every EMS worker must call a hotline after any suspected overdose under the Statewide Opioid Reporting Directive, or SWORD. And the training is a simple 12-minute video. How to place the call. The EMS crew should call Connecticut Poison Control at one 800 and say, I have a call for Connecticut SWORD. Then, a certified poison specialist like Lori Salinger picks up the phone. Normally, Salinger answers calls from worried parents whose kids swallowed something they shouldn't have. With this program, Salinger asks EMS 10 questions about the overdose and writes down what happened. EMS can move on to the next emergency call after that, but Salinger continues to track the patient. She calls a hospital to check up on an overdose victim and explains the new protocol to someone on the line. And so when they get transported to an emergency room, we follow up for data regarding that to help trend it. Yeah. So how's he doing? Salinger enters patient data onto a spreadsheet as she chats on the phone. She says her office handles about eight overdose calls a day just for the Hartford area. Poison Control has a grant to hire more specialists to man the phones as the program goes statewide. Activists who work with heroin users say these rapid overdose reports save lives. Mark Jenkins leads the Greater Hartford Harm Reduction Coalition. He pulls up an old email from paramedic Peter Canning about a rash of 11 overdoses over two days this past May. It even includes pictures of street drug baggies branded with logos for different types of heroin. These ODs were all separate incidents. One was fatal, and the identified bags included Pray for Death, I'll Be Back, and Head Games. Three ODs uh, were on Park Street in the Frog Hollow section. Jenkins says the email came out fast enough for him to send street teams there to hand out naloxone kits and strips to test for fentanyl. That's a synthetic opioid 50 times more powerful than heroin. When we get information like this, it's a heads up to say, watch out for this particular bag. Uh, Make sure you don't use alone. And if you 
do use do use together don't use at the same time. Jenkins wants to use data from the statewide opioid reporting directive to make the case for more funds for naloxone and other life-saving resources. Advocates and state leaders want to help curb the opioid epidemic. To do that, they need a detailed picture of what's going on. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Cassandra Basler. The first permanent school for deaf students in America was founded right here in New England back in 1817, the American School for the Deaf in West Hartford, Connecticut. Over the last 200 years, the possibilities for deaf students have increased, but their parents still face a tough choice. How should they teach the children to communicate? That's the topic of a new special reporting project by reporter David DeRoche from Connecticut Public Radio called Making Sense, Deaf Children and the Choices Their Parents Face. He's here with us in studio now. David, welcome to Next. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on, John. So we talk about two main choices that parents have. What are those choices? So what's interesting is that, you know, it's presented as two choices, but in reality, it's definitely more fluid. I know we're going to talk more about that later. But essentially, the the two choices are, should I teach my child sign language or should I get them cochlear implants or hearing aids and teach them how to speak? And the introduction of English into that mix is interesting because some people say, well, if my child's going to be signing, they need to learn some English because we live in the United States and that's the language people use. So does it look like English written in writing English or is it speaking English? So that's sort of how people who pick the sign language route, that's how they think about it. But then people who go the cochlear implant and speaking route, they pretty much generally just want to focus on the speaking and listening aspect of it. So there's spoken language, there's written language, there's American sign language, and as we'll say, there's there's cochlear implants, which let's talk about those first. This is a technology, obviously, that, that's more recent than 1817. It's only within the last couple of decades. Tell us about cochlear implants and what do they do? They're really interesting technology. So basically what they do is they convert sound waves into electrical impulses. You could implant children since about 2000. So for about the past 19 years, they've been implanting children as young as one years old. And uh, generally, if you implant a child very young, their access to sound is pretty good. They, they are able to understand sound or understand those electrical impulses as sound, and they're able to communicate. But it's not perfect, obviously. If you get implanted later, it can be uh, problematic. It can be harder to, for the brain to sort of figure out what it's actually processing. Um, on the other hand, you know, signing proponents say if you get access to sign language early, you won't need sort of this technology. And if, if you do get cochlear implants, parents are supposed to really communicate a lot with their child. They're supposed to talk a lot. They're supposed to explain things because they need this constant audio stimulation in order for the brain to be able to process the sound. So it's certainly not perfect. And and that's what's sort of interesting about the story is that there really are no perfect paths. Every path the parents take is fraught with a lot of controversy and a lot of issues. And you have some sound of actually what a cochlear implant might sound like to to a student who's had one implanted. This is a a representation of of what that could sound like? Yeah, it's pretty cool. So it's a clip from Arizona State University. So you're going to hear the sound input, and then you'll hear what it actually sounds like for a cochlear implant user. Don't live beyond your means. That was an unexpected outcome. That was an unexpected outcome. And so what's interesting about that is that's sort of what we think it sounds like, right? So we're able to make that approximation because there have been people who have uh, regained hearing after having had a cochlear implant. And so we're sort of able to approximate that. But depending on when a child or a person is implanted, that really determines what it actually sounds like. So again, there's a lot of gray area here. And so what that does for a child if you have a cochlear implant is it allows you to be 
part in some way of a hearing world, listening to language, learning to speak language and communicating the way people who have full hearing do. American Sign Language, that's a different option that some parents take and a lot of parents have taken over the course of the last many decades. Tell us more about that. Yeah, and I think you really hit the nail on the head when you described it as a world, right? So there's, there's the hearing world that we live in as hearing and speaking people, and then there is this deaf world, which is a deaf culture, it's language, it's all these different things. And so signing is, you know, from signing proponents, is considered the natural language of a deaf person. Somebody who doesn't have hearing, um, they're naturally a visual, right? They process visual things um, much faster generally than um, than hearing people do. And it's been, you know, sign language has been around since uh, since language, basically. If you figure that deafness has existed as long as, you know, uh, people have existed, the people who weren't able to speak centuries ago, you know, would just naturally gesture. And so there's always been this tension since language, basically, uh, between deaf people who want to communicate versus with sign language and then their family who maybe is hearing and speaking and they really want to pressure them to learn how to talk. And those issues still exist today. And you talk with uh, Jeff Braven. He's the executive director of the American School for the Deaf in West Hartford, which, as I mentioned earlier, is the oldest permanent school for the deaf in the United States. Let's listen to him here. He's speaking through a female interpreter. Doctors, audiologists, if they're strong believers in cochlear implants and that's what works, then they're going to recommend that the student is not in a signing environment, that they go to a purely oral environment. This is their belief. They have their research, but we also have our research from different groups of people who believe that sign language is the best modality to teach and provide that linguistic foundation. So in your reporting, David, for this special, you're really looking at what these two sides have learned and and how they feel it's best to teach students. And there really is a lot of tension here. You, You talk about the cultural piece of this, but there's also really conflicting data that looks at whether or not it's better to teach a kid early on American Sign Language and have that be the primary means of communication, whether or not you have a cochlear implant and and learn that way, or whether or not you can try to do both. And that's what's kind of interesting is that it's presented as this false dichotomy, right? For example, if you have uh, a researcher who's supporting sign language, they would say that if you're going to implant and speak with your child, it's going to delay their ability to learn sign. And uh, researchers who might support speaking and listening would say the opposite. They would say if you sign with your deaf child, they're just going to sign. They're not going to want to learn how to talk. But in reality, it's, it's a lot fuzzier than that. We talked to a number of different families, and they all seem to do some sort of variation, like at least a little bit of sign. If they're fully oral and fully hearing or they have the cochlear implants, they do some sign because sometimes you have to take the implant off, like if you're swimming or something like that. So most parents seem to do what they want to do, but at the same time, they're sort of confronted by the research community, which is the people we're supposed to listen to. They're the experts, right? So it's really kind of interesting how parents have to navigate that dichotomy and, and figure out what works for them. One of the experts you talked to in this is Elizabeth Cole. She's a former director of Crec Soundbridge. It's a program for deaf or hard of hearing infants and toddlers in Connecticut. Here she is talking in David's documentary. It's not such a simple thing because when parents are making decisions, what you really start off talking about babies, If you choose spoken language, then one of the things you need to do is keep the equipment on and talk to your child a lot about a lot of stuff all the time, and it's very tiring, and it's it's not an easy process. But if you choose sign language, then you need to get really fluent in sign language very fast because you want to immerse your child in in an appropriate, correct language model. 
So you know what's really interesting about that comment, John, is that it actually drew a complaint from a researcher who said that's not correct, that we know a lot about parents. If they take their time to learn sign language, the child won't be delayed. So it, it's very it's interesting. No matter what you get from either research community, they're going to get pushed back from the other side. Your reporting also touches on the idea of normalcy and what normal means. That's something that the parents and, and others are talking a lot about. Tell us about how this idea factors into the, the choice between implants and sign language. You know, and that really was fascinating for me to sort of think about and talk to people about was that everybody obviously has their own definition of what's normal, right, um, based on our personal experiences. And so when you're confronted with this, you know, uh, a lot of the researchers say, you know, most people just say to themselves, I just want my child to be normal. And when you have a child with, with a disability like, like deafness, a communication disability, how do you, you know, create an environment in which you feel like your child can feel normal? If they get cochlear implants, they'll have this techn- piece of technology on the outside of their ear that people will notice and maybe people will judge them, but they at least will be able to hear and talk. Whereas if you sign, if you teach your kids sign language, they won't have that technology, but then people will see them communicate. So then you might have to deal with that. So parents have to think about, you know, both of those things and what is more normal for them. And obviously, everybody has a different definition for that. So really trying to figure that out for for parents, trying to figure that out and navigate that can be pretty complex. David DeRoche is a reporter behind the new special for Connecticut Public Radio. This reporting project is called Making Sense, Deaf Children and the Choices Their Parents Face. You can find a link to it at nextnewengland.org. David, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thanks for allowing me on, John. Coming up, we'll take you out on the river where the fish are jumping. But first, how the health of bees can impact our food supply. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters, who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. A new study finds one quarter of New England wildflower species have disappeared over the last 150 years. Researchers are worried about what that means for local ecosystems. Here's Richard Premack. He's a biology professor at Boston University and the co-author of the study. Wildflowers are an important part of biological diversity. They're an important part of the environment, and they provide us directly or indirectly with services. They provide us with clean water, clean air. They also support pollinators, which also pollinate our crops. Premack says the decrease can be attributed to pollution, urban development, invasive species, and climate change. And the decline of our region's wildflower species isn't the only threat to our pollinators. Researchers have found that since 1947, the population of managed honeybees has dropped from 6 million colonies to 2.5 million. So how does the loss of pollinators affect our food system? That's the subject of a new documentary called The Pollinators. Peter Nelson is the director and director of photography for the film, and he joins us. Peter, welcome to Next. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, thanks so much for having me on. Your documentary starts with a scene of beekeepers loading and unloading boxes of bees on huge semi-trucks to take them to farms around the country. Maybe you can tell us more about what exactly they're doing and why. Yeah, so it's it's a very interesting story that most people don't know is that they move millions and millions of bees around the country 
for pollination, for agriculture. And people don't know about it because it mostly happens at night and in remote places, orchards and farms that most people don't get to. And so they, and they're covered up with a net when they travel during the day. So you could be driving down the highway next to a, you know, 10 million bees and, and um, you wouldn't even know it. So it's, it's our agricultural system has become dependent upon the movement of these bees. And it's not the beekeepers, but it's the changes in agriculture that have really driven this. And there's just not enough bees in most agricultural locations to be able to support what's needed at, at this at this time. That's why you need to bring in bees from elsewhere? Exactly. Yeah. For the farmers, it's kind of an insurance policy that, you know, as farms have gotten bigger and importantly, as they've gotten more simplified, meaning that there are more monocultures or one or two crops over a year, the bees that would normally live there, the native bees and honeybees, um, don't have anything to eat for much of the year um, if they're if they're left there, so so like almonds is a great example, where there's you know a couple million acres of um, of I'm sorry a million acres of almonds, and they have to bring in a couple million beehives in order to pollinate those almonds because for three and a half four weeks of the of the year the almonds are in bloom. After that, there's nothing else in bloom. So the bees don't have anything to forage on, and therefore nothing to eat. So it becomes essentially a food desert. Let's listen to one of these beekeepers who uses these managed bees around the country. This is Brett A.D. from A.D. Honey Farms. You know, it depends on whose numbers you look at, but the uh, USDA numbers say we have somewhere around 2.6 million hives, and uh, the Bee Informed Partnership out of Maryland's been shown been losing 30 to 40 percent of our hives, so a 30 percent loss of there puts us down to about 1.8 million hives, and that's about what the almond industry takes. So we're almost at 100% utilization of the bee supply. What does he mean there when, when he says we're almost at 100% utilization of the bee supply? Well, almonds is the first big crop of the year in the United States, and it's the biggest pollination event in the world. And so they bring in a couple million hives of, of bees from all over the country. They come from down south, you know, Georgia and, and Alabama and Mississippi, and then also up north they, they store they overwinter bees in old potato sheds and climate-controlled uh, um, buildings so that the bees can can get out there for the pollination. And so there's this mass movement of uh, truckloads of bees that go across the, across the United States every February um, in order to get there in time for the pollination. And so all these commercial bees has become such an important source of income for the beekeepers that they – um, almost all commercial beekeepers will move their bees out for almonds because it's it's so lucrative and essential to their annual income. A big reason for your documentary, of course, is because the overall bee population is is in decline. And, and here's another clip from the documentary, The Pollinators. It's Marianne Fraser. She's a retired senior extension associate at Penn State explaining a bit about this decline. You know, it's one straw too many. <laughs> you got mites, you got virus, you got, you know, poor nutrition, and then you have pesticide exposure on top of that. It's more than we should expect of any <laughs> any organism to survive. So for as much as we rely on bees clearly for the food that we eat, it seems as though we put them under an awful lot of stress. Maybe you can talk about that a bit more, about the reasons why these populations are in decline. Yeah, I think, you know, most people would like to believe that there's one thing that's killing the bees, and it's much more a complex problem than that. There are many factors that are affecting pollinator health, and it's not just honeybees. It's native pollinators as well, and there are about 4,000 4, species of bees in North America. But the big things are um, 
with honeybees. There are uh, parasites that are affecting the honeybees. The varroa mite um, is a terrible one. Pesticides, fungicides, herbicides are big factors. The poor nutrition that I mentioned earlier about a lack of diverse forage for the bees, viruses that are transmitted by mites and by other um, parasites, habitat loss, um, and climate change. These are, these are all factors that kind of uh, are affecting the honeybees and, and really creating a big problem for them. And this matters uh, in our pocketbooks. It matters in the food we eat. Here's, here's Susan Kegley. She's an organic chemist and CEO of Pesticide Research Institute speaking in your documentary. I think the general public should know that our food system is threatened by the fact that the bees are in trouble. And they should care about that because they eat food. Peter, could you give us a sense of, of just how important this is? Maybe something that people don't quite understand about what, what a precipice we're on if, if bees aren't there to be able to pollinate and help provide the food that we eat. Yeah, I, I um, it's 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 really important, and it's it, it means a lot to every one of us. And you know, not having um, a complete pollination and not having a full crop of apples or blueberries or cranberries or whatever um, is economically uh, bad for any of the the farmers in New England and elsewhere. But it's also it's bad for us. I mean, it's it's just the cost of food is going to go up, and it's a break in the natural cycle, if you will, about how. It should be done. I mean, the the example that I use a lot of times is if most people can imagine like how the Amish farm with a bunch of different crops, a diverse uh, mixture of different things that they grow, and therefore they have a variety of forage and habitat for bees. And a lot of farming has gotten away from that for, in the sense of simplicity. We don't see it as much in New England as you do out west in, you know, the Midwest and, and Great Plains area where you'll just see, you know, acres and thousands of acres of uh, corn and thousands of acres of soybeans. And that's all that they grow in certain areas. And so we, because of our landscape in New England, we're a little bit different from that. But it's an it's a um, it's a it's a a subject that really affects all of us, and it's going to you know the way we're going to experience it is is increased prices of food and lack of diversity. Once we start losing species of insects and pollinators, it's going to make things a lot more challenging. What are some things that people might do to protect native pollinators and in, in, in bees in our in our environment? Well, they can um, many people can find a local beekeeper and buy honey. And that's a really simple, low-cost thing to do if you buy local honey that is supporting that industry and supporting your neighbors, really. But other things that people can do is you can plant uh, habitat, pollinator gardens. And even if it's a window box, you can do – it's a small thing, but it makes a big difference. Education of children. Educating your elected officials and, and trying to change policy and lobbying for that for pollinator-friendly uh, roadsides that aren't getting sprayed. And a big thing that people can do is, is don't use herbicides, pesticides on their lawns. A lawn is a monoculture. It's grass and it's a food desert for bees and other pollinators. So I think that if people get used to the beauty that you can have by having dandelions and clover in their lawn as opposed to a, a golf course looking lawn, that's a big step. And less chemicals in the environment is a, is a, is a big thing. But supporting local agriculture, going to farmers markets, going, buying food from CSAs makes a huge difference. And I think this is a scalable solution. It can be done from the ground up. Peter Nelson's film is called The Pollinators. For more information about the documentary and for screening dates around our region, visit nextnewengland.org. Peter, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it.
Peter talked about the pesticides that are getting into ecosystems and harming pollinators, and they aren't the only contaminants that we have to worry about. Earlier this month, an accident at Bradley International Airport outside of Hartford caused thousands of gallons of firefighting foam containing PFAS chemicals to get into the sewer system that eventually made its way into the Farmington River's lower section. The Farmington was recently designated as a wild and scenic river by the federal government. Here's William Dornboss. He's executive director of the Farmington Watershed Association. It's tremendously upsetting um, for so many reasons. What we're trying to focus on is preventing this from happening again. Although it's unclear what long-term effects the spill will have, Connecticut's Department of Energy and Environmental Protection has warned people not to touch the foam or to eat the fish caught in that section of the river. And that's one of the things that's upsetting people who work on the Farmington. It's seen as one of the best fly fishing spots in the Northeast. Let's head to another now where NHPR's Sean Hurley went out with a couple of busy fly fishing guides on the Connecticut River before the fishing season began to learn some of their secrets. There's a time in late spring before the smelt begin to run and the salmon leave the lakes to chase them down the river that a certain kind of fisherman, like Bill Bernhardt and Paul Starring, will go and stand and rush in rushing cold waters to cast their lines and lace their nymphs over the rocky bottoms. We never catch anything early season. <laughs> yeah, we never catch anything. <laughs> because fishing is like, yeah. it's just not, not generally there, you know? When I tell Bernhardt that it might be hard to do a story about fishing if we don't catch any fish, he gives me an angle to work. So our marketing on that is going to be fish like a guide. Because your good guides don't get a chance to fish when the fishing's good. Your good guides get a chance to fish when the fishing's bad before the season and when the fishing is bad after the season. So you want to learn how to fish, fish like a guide. So off we go in rubber waders to stand in the frigid waters of the Connecticut River in the northernmost part of the state to fish like guides. So this is the top of the trophy stretch where we're at right now. They have roughly 2.3 miles of this section of river that runs down to Lake Francis. Took a water temperature, so the water temperature is 38 degrees, roughly. So that's really, really cold. You know, when it gets that cold, the fish just aren't as active. The bugs aren't as active. So the fish are going to sit down there, and they're still going to you know, be fish, but they're just not, like, their metabolism is going to be a lot slower, so they're just not going to have to feed as often, et cetera, et cetera. It's going to make you work harder for it. Water temperatures in the low to mid-50s would be ideal, Bernhardt says. But such warmth? Is still a few weeks away. So all I'm doing here is I'm just taking the barb off the hook. I'm just smashing down the barb. What we do is just catch and release, so it's just easier to take the, the fish off the, the hook if it doesn't have that little barb on. Paul Starring fishes in knee-deep water, flicking his line up river and watching the orange bobber, or indicator as he calls it, float back down on the hard-moving current. Sometimes you'll watch that little indicator and it'll bump, bump, bump. Okay, so sometimes it's a rock. You know, you hear a lot of people, oh, it's just a rock, you know. Could have been a, a fish doing a really quick little nip on it. After 30 minutes without a nip, Bernhardt suggests we hike through the woods and try a different spot further down. This spot in particular is what they call judges and juries. So this is the judges box there and that's the jury box down there. Bernhardt points out the two descending watery plateaus, the upper spilling over rocks into the lower. A long time ago a judge used to fish here and that's why they named it that way. The starring begins to cast, Bernhardt finds a knoll above the river and stares down into a patch of calmer water. A lot of times, you know, if the light's right, which is not too bad now, you can see fish in here. So, you know, you watch the water long enough, and eventually a clear pane will go across a window, and you'll be able to kind of look right down there and see. But I haven't seen anything yet. Bernhardt strides into the current and presses his face nearly into the water. He flies a black stone from the river bottom and spins it over. 
really small mayfly nymph right there, right off my fingertip. So let's see there's some caddis larva. So a lot of times people will talk about, you know, matching the hatch, so to speak. You know, so you flip over some rocks and you'll be like, oh, there's a bunch of stoneflies here. Or there's a bunch of mayflies and caddises. And so now you know, it's like if I was a trout, what am I going to be feeding on? You know, mayflies, you know, and caddises and stoneflies. Matching the hatch then is fishing with flies or nymphs of the bugs you find active in the water. You tick bottom at all in there? I have. Yeah. I haven't seen anything though either. No flashes or anything. After fishing for nearly two hours in the high fishless tradition of the best sorts of guides, Bernhardt and Starring agree we should call it a day. You know, first of all, look where you are. You know, you're out in a beautiful location and this is pretty gorgeous. You know, I don't need to be catching fish every five seconds. But as we drive away from the river, Bernhardt says, in just a few short days, both he and Starring will be leading small groups of anglers who hope to do just that. Right now, I only have one day off in the month of June. So pretty much after, I think, next Wednesday, I'll be, uh, I'll be right out for a while. And what's a fishing guide to do on his one day off in 30? <laughs> Chances are, if I had a free day off, I'm going fishing anyways. <laughs> so it's like... Bernard won't be fishing like a guide on that lone day in June, he says. And he spreads his hands wide to show me the massive size of the future fish he's bound to catch. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Sean Hurley. Coming up, an investigation into labor practices at music venues in western Massachusetts. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate and clean energy. Support also comes from the Melville Charitable Trust. Northampton, Massachusetts is a go-to stop for musicians touring through the Northeast. Sure, it's a college town, but it's also home to the iconic Iron Horse Music Hall, a venue that's been presenting rock, folk, jazz, and world music since 1979. It's also a mecca for music fans from all over New England. Since buying the tiny storefront club back in 1995, Eric Schuer has expanded it into the Iron Horse Entertainment Group, or IHEG, which includes five venues, including the classic Calvin Theater. But some of the big names who've crossed the IHEG stages have publicly criticized conditions at Schuer's venues. Public officials have also fought with Schuer over liquor licenses he kept for years on vacant properties. Now, some new complaints. Former IHEG employees are coming forward with claims of wage theft and intimidation. New England Public Radio's Ellery Berenger investigated. Lindsay Muslick was on the job hunt after graduating from Smith College a couple years ago. Her major was American Studies, her focus music and pop culture. 
Right out of the gate, Muslik found a job in her field, a position at the Northampton box office, IHEG's ticketing headquarters. Because IHEG is so prevalent and pervasive in the area, I figured that that was kind of the only game in town in order to, to gain work in the music industry. Muslik says she liked certain aspects of her job. The office was beautiful. She could walk to work. Occasionally, she would see a band she liked. But after a couple of months, she says she noticed hours missing from her paychecks. Meal breaks, she says she never took, were being deducted from her pay. Her former co-worker, Callie C., says she noticed the same pattern. I would get my paycheck and my pay stub back, and there would be half an hour gone from every day. Like, someone, whoever was doing payroll, had to manually go through and deduct the 30 minutes themselves. C. says she no longer has those records. But Muslik and another former IHEG employee do. We compared their pay stubs and timesheets and saw the missing hours. When they were hired, Muslik and C say they were not clear about their rights. Most days, there were only one or two people working in the box office, so they figured they couldn't take breaks. They didn't know that, in Massachusetts, workers like them are entitled to a 30-minute meal break, unpaid, for every six hours worked. If an employee doesn't take their break, they must be paid like normal. There are posters that explain all of this and more. Labor law posters. You've probably seen them. State law requires they be posted somewhere prominent in a workplace, like a break room. Ten former employees we spoke to, all but two in recorded interviews, say these posters were nowhere to be found in any IHEG venue or the box office. Here are Cole Payne, Maude Behrens, and Casey Oborowski, all of whom left within the past two years. There was no workers' rights poster at any of the venues. It was just kind of understood that we didn't have any. At none of Eric's venues, is there a poster that tells you, like, your OSHA rights or, like, uh, what minimum wages or sick leave. Did you ever see any workers' rights posters or anything like that? Nothing like that. We reached out to IHEG owner Eric Schur multiple times for comment, but never heard back. Former box office manager Stevie Pipes says she came to IHEG knowing her rights. She called prior bosses of hers iffy on following the law. So in lieu of posters, Pipes says she printed out her rights from the state's website and hid them where her co-workers, Muslik and C, would know to find them. I made sure that all of them know, you know, if you guys are here working by yourself and you want to take your break, you lock the door and you can go take your break. And here's C. Even after Stevie told me I was allowed to take breaks, I still was afraid to. And I was afraid to use the bathroom because I, I was worried that Eric would come by when I happened to be out and, like, fire me without saying anything um, or dock my pay. Now, nearly everyone's had a boss they didn't get along with, but employee unease about Shure went beyond that. Nine former IHEG workers, including kitchen, front of house, and security staff, say they witnessed or received verbal abuse from Shure. One former employee who chose to remain anonymous describes the atmosphere like this, quote, Shure would just insult you and berate you. A lot of times it wasn't just abusive, it was confusing. You couldn't follow what he was even asking because he was just yelling at you to yell at you, unquote. It makes it difficult to voice workplace concerns when the complaint department is also your boss. Here's Lindsay Muslick and Callie C. There is no HR department. There is no direct chain of authority or chain of command. The chain of command is Eric. Sure was also essentially the payroll department. He distributed everyone's checks himself. Nine former employees say their checks would frequently arrive days or even weeks behind schedule. Graham Hurlbert is the former head of security at IHEG. 
I think the hardest part about working for Eric was the the paychecks. Sometimes you'd wait, you know, six weeks for a paycheck. Late paychecks are actually illegal. State law says hourly workers must be paid every week or every other week. Cole Payne says that when he was hired to do security at IHEG, it was his first major job out of high school. Like other young employees we spoke to, Payne says he assumed the best of employers. That is, until his paycheck started coming in late. He would always say, oh yeah, they're in my car, or they're just around the corner. And then when you actually got your hands on them, you could see their issue date was often that day or the day prior. So you'd know that for a couple of weeks he'd been lying and saying that, oh, they're in his car and, oh, he just forgot. But in reality, he hadn't issued them. Three former security workers we spoke to say they work shifts at every IHEG venue, but each one had its own payroll. Graham Hurlbert says he didn't hold on to his old pay stubs, but altogether, he'd sometimes work way over 40 hours a week. Say I work six hours here and eight hours there. Those are all separate paychecks. So I would never get overtime. The overtime rate in Massachusetts is time and a half for all hours worked beyond 40 in a week. Hurlbert, among other employees, says he thought that by divvying up an employee's hours among his different venues, Shure was exploiting a creative legal loophole. That doesn't appear to be so. The state attorney general's office wouldn't speak specifically about IHEG, but says an employer cannot set up separate payrolls for multiple branches of a business in order to avoid paying overtime. Despite the obstacles, three employees say they did end up going to Shure directly with their rights in hand. Whether it was about breaks, late pay, or overtime, the employees who threatened legal action say they got what they requested going forward. Former IHEG kitchen and bar worker Maud Behrens says he had to use that approach to collect paid sick leave. During the entire time I worked there, no one had ever taken sick leave. Like, if you were sick, you lost that day's pay. When Behrens discovered information about paid sick leave online, he says he wished he'd found it sooner. He and his co-workers had worked while sick many times, he says, because they often couldn't afford to take days off. I found out through doing this research that if you have more than 11 employees, you have to offer paid sick leave. So I asked my manager about this, and he said, no, like, we're too small of a business. The manager relented, however, when Barron's pointed out the law. Besides Barron's, none of the IHEG employees we spoke to say they knew about paid sick leave. Again, that's the kind of info they would have found on a worker's rights poster. I could have had that time, and so many other people could have too, and not a single person working with that company knew. And I still am sure they most of them don't because that information is not posted. We checked with the Better Business Bureau, OSHA, and the Attorney General's Fair Labor Division, all organizations which enforce labor laws around wages, safety, and freedom from exploitation. We found no complaints submitted by IHEG employees. It seems that anyone from IHEG seeking legal help went instead to the Pioneer Valley Workers Center, a nonprofit based in Northampton. Co-director Rose Bookbinder is also an organizer for Jobs with Justice, another workers' rights activist group. Over the years, both the Workers' Center and Jobs with Justice have been approached by not only workers, but consumers and musicians. Many of the uh, individuals have initially wanted to pursue some sort of wage claim against IHEG or Eric Sewer, but ultimately have wound up being scared of being blacklisted by him and all of his you know, different venues. Bookbinder explained what she meant by blacklisted. Many employees at IHEG who've come to the Workers' Center are also musicians, she says. 
That was true of at least five people we spoke to. Bookbinder says given how well-known IHEG is in the area, employees were afraid that if they caused a stir, they might risk future opportunities in the local music scene. Other IHEG employees shared their own reasons for not coming forward until now. Here's Casey Oparowski, Graham Herbert, and Stevie Pipes. I didn't think I could really do anything about it or that it was different from anyone else's workplace. I feel bad for not coming forward with complaints sooner. I was dealing with my own stuff, but you know, I feel bad for not fighting more for my staff and getting them what they deserve. I just feel like I didn't want to lose my job. I was quite frankly a little bit hesitant about saying something initially and having my name attached to this, but honestly, I think that you shouldn't be able to make your employees feel like that for so long and treat people like that for so long and just continue to get away with it. We reached out to Eric Schuer for comment repeatedly by email, phone, and text. Despite promising to respond, we have not heard back from him or any IHEG representative. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Ellery Berenger. The Massachusetts Attorney General's office says it will look into allegations of wage theft made by former employees of IHEG. A statement from the Attorney General's office says it hasn't received any complaints against IHEG, but employees should reach out to the AG's Fair Labor Division. David Narkowitz is mayor of Northampton, where four venues are located, as well as the company's box office. I would hope and encourage any employees that feel that their rights have been violated, that they will report them and that the state will conduct an investigation. Narkowitz says the city doesn't have a way at this point to enforce compliance of state wage laws. The owner of IHEG, Eric Schuher, has not responded to New England Public Radio's repeated requests for comment, but in a brief interview with the Springfield Republican newspaper, Schuher denied the allegations. You can find our program wherever you get your podcasts. You can just search Next New England. And if you like what you hear, please be sure to rate and review us. It does help. You can also follow Next on Facebook and Twitter at Next New England. Our show is produced by Lily Tyson. Our digital producer is Carlos Mejia. And our executive producer is Katie Talarski. We had help this week from Paul Roost. Music this week is by Todd Merrill. Goodnight Blue Moon, Billy Wilder, Noel Micarelli, and Francesca Blanchard. And we welcome the listeners of WBUR in Boston to our program this week. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Radio, WBUR, WSHU, and the Publix Radio.